in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was good. He created man and set him along with woman in the garden to cultivate it. To spread the joy of Eden throughout the earth. Adam and Eve served as God's vice-regents, kings and queens of the world, declaring His rule and His reign. They were God's people in God's place under God's lordship. Nevertheless, the allure of sin, the temptation to self determination eventually overwhelmed them. As they ate of that forbidden fruit which ushered sin and death into the world. In the garden, Adam and Eve were enjoying life as it was meant to be. And yet they exchanged all the blessings of Eden. For death and curse. They exchanged God's rule for their own and set themselves against Him in rebellion. Of course, God, because He is good, He judged them and cast them out of His holy presence from the garden. Yet God did not give up on them. Instead, He embedded a promise in verse 15 of chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, declaring that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. That the seed of the woman would save man. And so instead of naming his wife death, since she had eaten the fruit first, We read at the end of that chapter that Adam calls his wife by the name Eve, which means life, because she would be the mother of the living. From her womb would come one who would bring God's people back into God's presence, into a new Eden, where people would enjoy all the blessings of God. Leviticus 26 this morning, we have for us blessings and curses. They are enumerated throughout the chapter. And the blessings come to the people insofar as they continue to abide in the loving relationship that they already enjoy with God. Yet if they break this covenant that they've entered into with the holy God of the universe, then they will be calling down curses upon themselves after the likeness of their first parents. One of the things we've observed throughout Leviticus is that what God is doing is He is creating a a new kind of Eden with His people. He's put the tabernacle in the center of their camp, God's presence, He's taking them to the promised land, God's place. And He's called them by His own name. Made them His own by redeeming them out of Egypt. They are God's people. 
And so we get this image of Eden in Leviticus as God the King lives with and walks with His people in loving relationship. That's God's heart. Relationship with His people. And that's what I think the heartbeat of this chapter full of blessings and curses and ultimately the grace of God is. Is that God desires to bless and walk with His people. The exhortation is is simple this morning. Humble yourself. Repent of your sins and your false gods. And walk with the one true God. Let's pray and we will begin. Father, we ask that you would teach us through your word. That you would give us ears to hear. That you would glorify yourself and your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Leviticus chapter 26 verse 1. Do not make idols for yourselves. Do not set up a carved image or sacred pillar for yourselves or place a sculpted stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. Keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. These first two verses recall to our minds and to the minds of the people of Israel the nature of their relationship with God. And so, by a simple contrast, two commands, one negative and one positive, the whole law is conjured up in our minds. It's as if the whole law is funneled down to these two things. Do not make idols. Do not bow down to them. Don't worship other gods. And then the positive, keep the Sabbath the covenant sign, revere God's sanctuary. And so what we can see, the point of these is to worship God alone and and only God. This is the, the primary tenet of the covenant, that God's people would be devoted exclusively to God. And yet, as simple as that command seems to us, it's very difficult. It's difficult for the people of God to worship God alone. Most of us have grown up within a context where monotheism is not foreign. But in the ancient world, monotheism was kind of wacky. Everybody had multiple gods. You know, you, know, you want your crops to grow, you worship this god. You, you, you want your wife to get pregnant, you, you worship this god. You want this or that, you worship this or that particular God. And, and what the Lord, the God of Israel says is, those are all false gods. Worship me alone. You cannot worship me and these false gods. I demand exclusive devotion. I demand your faithfulness. So the people, they would be tempted to worship the gods of the nations that surrounded them. Now, God's command to exclusive devotion has not changed. Nor has the temptation of God's people. We, like Israel before us, are tempted to worship 
false gods. Now, most of us are not, uh, you know, getting clay or iron or whatever they, they made their false gods of and fashioning them and bowing down to them, you know, keeping it in your closet. But we do try to fashion for ourselves other deities. We, we give ourselves, look for life from sources other than the Lord our God. And so, what happens is, is we are tempted to conform ourselves to the image of our culture. Just like the Israelites were. I mean, you can, you can see this when you just look at how many churches have jettisoned God's commands in favor of a more convenient adherence to the sexual revolution. You can see this in many self-professed Christians who conveniently sculpt and shape the Lamb of God so that He looks like a donkey or an elephant. We have this great temptation to make Jesus look just like us, to think just like us as if he is squishy and malleable, soft. But this is not the God of the Bible. Jesus is the rock of ages. And he demands that we cast down our idols. He demands that we build our lives upon him rather than the sand. The call of the Christian is the same as it was to Israel, to worship the one true God and Him alone. Jesus does not allow any competition. We must choose, the decision to come to the God who is, is an either-or decision. We can have Jesus, or we can have our other gods. We cannot have both. Jesus will not coexist with the God of money. He will not coexist with the God of Muhammad or Marx. He will not coexist with Buddha or Biden or Trump. Jesus demands exclusive obedience. He is our King and our Lord and our God. And we may worship at no other idol. We may worship no other man. We may follow no other worldview save for that of Christ Jesus. I wonder how many of us, like Israel before us, find ourselves, when we're honest, being shaped more by the culture than by God's Word. How many of us are bowing down at the altar of partisanship and political party than we are before Christ? We cannot have both. Is Jesus utmost in your affections? Is He your God alone? Who calls the shots in your life? God demands exclusive 
devotion. His people are wed to him as a bride is wed to a groom. And he will suffer no other lovers. When his people are faithful, they will enjoy all the blessings that come with faithfulness. Those blessings are outlined for us starting in verse 3. If you follow my statutes and faithfully observe my commands, I will give you rain at the right time, and the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until sowing time, and you will have plenty of food to eat and live securely in the land. I will give peace to the land, and you will lie down with nothing to frighten you. I will remove dangerous animals from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will pursue a hundred, and a hundred of you will pursue ten thousand. Your enemies will fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you, make you fruitful, and multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old grain of previous years, and will clear out the old to make room for the new. I will place my residence among you, and I will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would no longer be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to live in freedom. Perhaps all the blessings here could be summarized as peace, prosperity, personal relationship with God. But allow us to make five observations, five important observations about these blessings. First, God has already redeemed his people from slavery. Their obedience is not earning the blessing. It's not an exchange. Rather, the people enjoy God's blessing as they enjoy relationship with Him. People are not earning relationship with God through their obedience, but enjoying the blessings of abiding in covenant relationship together with Him. Secondly, these promises are for theocratic Israel of the Old Covenant, and they cannot be applied to any contemporary nation. Third, these promises are corporate, not personal. The promises are made to Israel under the old covenant as a nation, not to individuals. God was not promising personal wealth. He was promising national blessing based on national faithfulness. That can be seen just quite simply if you look back at the chapter before this one in chapter 25. God gives the people for the rules for the year of Jubilee, which make the presupposition that there will be people in poverty that need to have economic opportunity, that need to be ministered to. The year of Jubilee has a point. And so there will be poor in the land. This isn't a promise that every person and every family and every place in Israel will flourish. It's a corporate and national promise. And it's made to Israel. 
And so one of the great mistakes that we can make is to look at these promises and then try to pick them up and apply them directly to ourselves as individuals. And say, see, what was, what was promised to Old Covenant Israel applies to me as an individual. Therefore, if I live in obedience to God, there's an automatic one-to-one, I'm going to be blessed and be prosperous. That's, that's a bad way to read these promises. It's the way that, that many false teachers read them today. They, they preach to people a prosperity gospel. As if God's ultimate aim was to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise in this life. As if the blessings of God were the goal rather than God himself. Friends, we must be very careful not to read the scriptures that way. We must understand how God's promises are made and who they are to. This is a, a promise that is corporate, not personal. Fourth uh, comment. God does bless his people with physical blessings. Right? It's true. Now, there's not always a one-to-one correlation, right? It, sometimes from, for faithfulness, Christians will be persecuted and endure suffering. Look at the life of the Apostle Paul. Or think of that passage in in 2 Timothy. All who seek to live a a godly life will be persecuted. Nevertheless, God does promise to meet our needs. Paul tells us, my God will supply all your needs. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, the things we need for life, will be provided for you. Jesus teaches us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. And so God is concerned both about uh, the physical and spiritual nature of his people. He's concerned. He blesses his people. So we ought not scorn all physical blessings as if they come to us from some alien source and not the hand of God. And yet we mustn't seek them as an end in and of themselves. Physical blessings are not the goal. Here's our, our fifth point or observation, the ultimate blessing is relationship with God. Notice there there is a progression in these verses where it kind of builds up, like this is a good blessing, this is a good blessing, this is a good blessing, and then it finally gets to the the crescendo, is relationship with God. I mean, these promises are are great. You're going to have rain at the appropriate time. You're, you're going to have great big harvest. It's going to be so plentiful, so prosperous that while you are harvesting your, your wheat, your crop, you're still going to be harvesting while you're sowing the next one. It'd be like if you have a little garden in your backyard here in Nelson County and you planted it and you are you know, reaping it all, all through the winter, and you're not done harvesting yet, and you look up and you're like, you know what, I need to start sowing my seed again. So you're going to have abundance beyond measure, beyond what you need. That is incredible. Peace from enemies. Victory over your enemies. I love this. Nothing to frighten you. This is complete security. And all of these promises build to to the best blessing of them all. I will place my residence among you and will not reject you. I will walk among you 
and be your God and you will be my people. God has created us for himself and our greatest good is found in walking with him. Christian, this is a promise that you can claim right now in Christ. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. In Christ, we have the very presence of God. God the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, dwells in you, lives in you. Jesus Christ walks with you. 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, listen to what God had said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Christian, the greatest blessing anyone can possibly have is relationship with God. What makes this blessing so great is, is it is what we were made for. We were made to live in the presence of God under God's rule. And one day when Christ returns, we will live together under the presence or under the rule of God, in God's presence, in God's place. Right now we are scattered about. chief blessing is God. Don't, don't miss that. Don't, don't trick yourself into thinking or to setting your affections on temporary blessings. You know, house, car, money, you know, whatever it is. Instead, set, set your heart on Christ and rejoice because you know God. It must be pointed out here but one of the things that makes this blessing so good is that it's not something that we automatically have. Relationship with God is not something that everyone has. I think sometimes uh, we, we look around our world or we talk as if everybody is in relationship with God. You hear things that are true insofar as they go, right? We're all God's children. That's true in one sense. Everybody's created by God, made in the image of God, worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. But in another sense, it is, is not true. The Bible tells us that those apart from Christ are children of wrath. And that in order to be children of God, we must be adopted into His family by faith alone. Friends, no one outside of relationship with Jesus Christ has peace with God. No one outside of relationship with Jesus Christ is in relationship with God. Not right relationship. And there are no exceptions. So non-Christian, if you are here, I encourage you to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose again so that all who put their trust in Him can have their sins forgiven and be raised from the dead with Him and enjoy the blessings of God that they were made for.
the people of Israel will enjoy the blessings of a new kind of Eden if they walk faithfully with the Lord their God. Once more, God is not demanding perfection from his people. He's demanding covenant fidelity, right? So so you understand this. There's a difference between um, a, a couple being married and one of the spouses being imperfect versus one of the spouses being unfaithful, right? God doesn't expect his people to be perfect. He's set up the sacrificial system in order for their sins to be atoned for. Not demanding perfection, but faithfulness. He doesn't expect his people to be flawless, but to be faithful. And yet if they choose infidelity, then they will receive curses just as their first parents did. Look with me, verse 14. But if you do not obey me and observe all of these commands, if you reject my statutes and despise my ordinances and do not observe all of my commands and you break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring terror on you, wasting disease and fever, that will cause your eyes to fail and your life to ebb away. You will sow your seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will turn against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even though no one is pursuing you. These are general curses set out here in verses 14 through 17. And what we'll see is a progression. As long as the people refuse to repent and return to the Lord their God, the curses will intensify and continue until they finally culminate, as you'll see when we get to the end, in exile and death. I don't want you to miss God's heart in this. See, God's heart is to bless his people with those Eden-like blessings in verse 13. And because his heart is to bless and to walk with his people, he disciplines his people. So that all of these curses have as their goal restoration to fellowship. God does not curse from his heart. Does that make sense? His his deepest heart is to bless his people. He, He does not take great joy in disciplining his people any more than a good parent takes great joy in disciplining a wayward child. And yet, like a good parent, God disciplines his people so that he might train them up in the way of righteousness. He disciplines his people so that they might put their hope In Him, disciplines because He loves. He sets Himself against His people because He is for His people. The hope is that they might repent. And yet, if we do not, we we read of the devastation 
that will come upon these covenant breakers. Look at verse 18. But if after these things you will not obey me, I will proceed to discipline you seven times for your sin. This is not seven times like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. This is seven times as we've seen throughout Leviticus. Complete, full, total. He's saying, I'm going to discipline you thoroughly, completely for your sins. I will break down your strong pride. I will make your sky like iron and your land like bronze and your strength will be used up for nothing. Your land will not yield its produce and the trees of the land will not bear their fruit. Notice, notice here this first kind of section of curses. God says one of the, the goals of this discipline is to break your pride. He tells the people, I'm going to break your pride by sealing off the sky and the ground as if they are metals so that they produce neither rain nor grain. God's calling His people to see that they depend on Him for their life, their breath, and everything. And yet, they do not repent. The curses will continue and intensify. Verse 21, If you walk against me, is what it literally says, or if you act with hostility toward me and are unwilling to obey me, I will multiply your plagues. Seven times, completely, thoroughly. For your sins, I will send wild animals against you that will deprive you of your children, ravage your livestock, and reduce your numbers until your roads are deserted. God will begin to disintegrate society, reducing their population, taking away their safety and their peace. And yet, if they do not repent, the curses will continue and intensify. Verse 23, if in spite of these things you do not accept my discipline but walk against me, act with hostility toward me, then I will walk against you, act with hostility towards you. I also will strike you seven times for your sins. I will bring a sword against you to execute the vengeance of the covenant. Though you withdraw into your cities, I will send a pestilence among you and you will be delivered into enemy hands. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will bake your bread in a single oven and ration out your bread by weight so that you will eat but not be satisfied. Their enemies will chase them into their cities and yet they won't be able to escape. There will be sickness and famine. No one will have enough to eat to be satisfied. And yet, if they still do not repent, the curses will continue and intensify. Verse 27, And if in spite of this you do not obey me, but walk against me, act with hostility toward me, I will act, I will walk with a furious hostility towards you. I will also discipline you seven times for your sins. You will eat the flesh of your sons. You will eat the flesh of your daughters. Think of all the 
the curses, this is perhaps the most horrendous. The people eating their own children. The famines are such that there's no food that people turn to, to eating their children who, who have died. Actually, it's worse than that. We read in 2 Kings chapter 6 of two women who represent kind of everyone. They, they're eating their children before they die. The two women make a deal. Today, we will eat your son, and tomorrow, we will eat mine. And they boil the one woman's son and eat him, and then the next day, the other woman hides her child. And the one woman whose son was boiled and ate feels wrong, and so they go before the king, who tears his garments at this awful, horrendous famine. These curses that are coming on the people. What a vivid picture of sin. Sin leads to death. Sin causes us to destroy even that which we love most. Instead of turning to God in repentance, the people prefer to turn to cannibalism. Verse 30, I will destroy your high places, cut down your shrines, and heap up your lifeless bodies on the lifeless bodies of your idols. I will reject you. Uh, Verse 30 here is, is really interesting. Uh, The word for idols comes from the same root, which is also used to refer to dung. And so, so the sentence, one commentator points out, literally reads, I will cast your corpses on the corpses of your dung-like objects. God couldn't be clearer here. You will become like what you worship. The idols that you are trusting in are crap. They're lifeless. And if you put your trust in them, you will become dead like they are. Verse 31, I will reduce your cities to ruins and devastate your sanctuaries. I will not smell the pleasing aroma of your sacrifices. I will also devastate the land so that your enemies who come to live there will be appalled by it. I will scatter you among the nations and I will draw a sword to chase after you. So your land will become desolate and your cities will become ruins. This is interesting, kind of like interjection in verse 34. Then the land will make up for its Sabbath years during the time it lies desolate while you are in the land of your enemies. At that time, the land will rest and make up for its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it will have the rest that you did not give it during your Sabbaths when you lived there. So so remember last week at the beginning of chapter 25, the people are commanded to let the land rest one year in seven just as they rest one day in seven. And the assumption here is that the people have not been obedient to that. And God says, you won't give the land its rest. You're being disobedient to the covenant. Here are all these curses. And you know what? Part of what's going on in these curses is I'm giving the land the rest that you should have. 
verse 36, I will put anxiety in the hearts of those of you who survive in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a wind-driven leaf will put them to flight. What, what a contrast. Living without fear under the blessings to now the sound of a leaf on the wind will scare the people. And they will flee as one flees from the sword and fall though no one is pursuing them. They will stumble over one another as if fleeing from a sword, though no one is pursuing them. You will not be able to stand against your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land of your enemies will devour you. Those who survive in the lands of your enemies will waste away because of their iniquity. They will also waste away because of their father's iniquities along with theirs. Exile, death, enmity with God. These are the consequences of sin. These are the, the curses of covenant unfaithfulness. And even these horrendous consequences of sin, these curses are used by God to bring His people back to Himself. God is more committed to your holiness and your salvation and your trust in Him than He is to your temporary contentment. God will discipline His people so that they return to Him. He's committed to training His people in righteousness. He still is. Hebrews 12, 5-7 instruct us, My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. So if we are in Christ, when we suffer, our first response shouldn't be to ask the question, does God even love me? God, do you care about me? Rather, our response should be, God, what do you have to teach me? God, what sin do I need to repent of? What sin might I need to repent of? I'm not saying, I'm not saying that all suffering comes as a direct consequence of sin, as if you can say, uh, all right, here's sin A. I stubbed my toe this morning, and I, I cursed uh, my wife who, who moved the stool where it shouldn't have been. And so now, when I walk outside, uh, a bird defecates upon my head. And I, can't, I can't draw a straight line like that. But when suffering does come upon me, I do well to examine the question. Is there unrepentant sin in my life that God might be using these disciplinary actions to, to get out of me? 
What sin do I need to repent of? Our response to suffering should not be to question the steadfast, unfailing love of the Lord our God. Our response should be, how is God conforming me to the image of Christ in this? I trust that God is at work in this darkness because I believe what He has said in the light. I know that God loves me, that Jesus Christ gave Himself for me, and that He is working everything for my good. We should endure suffering as discipline. Allowing even that which seems like a curse to lead us to repentance. To lead us back to walking with the Lord our God. God's short-term judgments are meant to lead us to long-term repentance. The curses that plague this world are meant to wake us up to evil and to create within us a longing for the way things ought to be. A longing for Eden. The death that ends every life should remind us that this is not the way it should be. Suffering does the difficult work of pulling our hearts out of this world and setting them on Christ. Suffering pries our fingers off of our idols and places us into the arms of Jesus. That's that's the goal. The Lord is dealing with us as sons. Another thing we must note from these curses is that they are all previews of hell. Quite literally there when you've got people eating their children and fleeing from the sound of a wind-driven leaf. No peace, no security, no relationship with God. This is a, a portrait of hell. A shadow that isn't as terrible as the reality. Friends, the shadows of hell that we see on earth should frighten us. Famine, cannibalism, disease, war, fear, death should motivate us to turn away from our sins and towards Jesus. They should break down our pride so that we quit our rebellion and walk with the King. What will it take for your pride to be broken? What does God have to do in your life to humble you so that you might return to Him? Hell is real. And hell is one of the many things that should motivate us to turn to God. We were not made for its curse. We were made for the blessing that comes with walking with God. And the goal of these curses, the goal of this discipline is to lead the people back into the loving, forgiving arms of their God. Look with me at verse 40. But when they confess their iniquity, the iniquity of their fathers, the iniquity they practiced that they walked in, their unfaithfulness that they practiced against me, and how they acted with hostility toward me, how they walked against me, and how I acted with hostility towards them, how I walked against them and brought them into the land of their enemies. 
And when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, see that contrast between the pride and the humility there? Humbled, then they make amends for their iniquity. They endure the punishment. They offer sacrifices. They return to the Lord their God. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will also remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. For the land abandoned by them will make up for its Sabbaths by lying desolate without the people, while they make amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, while they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject or abhor them so as to destroy them and break my covenant with them, since I am the Lord their God. You see that? Even though the people are faithless, God continues to be faithful. For their sake, I will remember the covenant of their fathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes, ordinances, and the laws that the Lord established between himself and the Israelites through Moses on Mount Sinai. God is faithful when the people are faithless. It's a beautiful depiction of this in the book of Hosea, wherein the prophet is called to marry a wife that he knows will be wayward. And she is unfaithful over and over and over again. And one of the best scenes in the whole book, you have, you have Gomer, is his wife's name, standing up there on this platform being sold as a servant because she's got so many debts and she cannot pay them and she's standing naked. And Hosea comes as she's being auctioned off and he says, I will buy her. I will buy her back. He redeems her to himself. She has nothing to give him, nothing to offer. She's offered him nothing but heartache and unfaithfulness and trouble. And yet he buys her back. And he does so so that we might have a picture of what God does for us in Christ on the cross. He's buying us back. We've chosen sin and destruction and death. We have rebelled against God, seeking after other lovers. We have sold ourselves into slavery to sin. In many ways, we are naked, full of shame. And Jesus Christ comes to us and says, I will buy you. The world looks and says, who could love a person like that? Who could love a person so vile? Jesus Christ says, I can. I will. I do. Love in these verses, even though the people have over and over again acted in disobedience, over and over again acted against God, over and over again shattered the covenant that he has made with them, they did not, could not exhaust his mercy. God's mercy is not finished. His grace always outpaces our sins. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. He gives grace that's greater than all of our sins. He stands willing to forgive and to walk with any who humble themselves and put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
who died for the sins of his people. How can God do this? How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? By his grace. By his provision through the sacrificial system. Not the sacrifices of blood and goats, but of his own son. Friends, God so loves you, so desires to bless and walk with his people, that he sends Jesus to take on flesh and to dwell among us. God so loves you, desires to bless and walk with his people, that Jesus lives a perfect life in your place, earned the Eden-like blessing of God. God so loves and desires to bless and walk with his people that Jesus Christ took the curse due to sin on the cross. God so desires and loves you, wants to bless and walk with his people that he raised Jesus Christ up from the dead so that when our faith is in him, we can have hope that we too shall rise. God so desires to walk and love and bless you that Jesus Christ promises to return and bring heaven and earth together in a new Eden where all of his people can live under his rule, in his presence, in his place. This is the heart of God. He is a God committed to rescuing His people from the darkness of sin that they've plunged themselves into. He is the great rescuer. He welcomes all who will repent of sin and come to Him. So, friends, this morning, humble yourself. Come to Jesus. He will give you rest. He is a good and mighty king. Stop walking against God. He delights to forgive his people. He would love to walk with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and for your love. We thank you that you use even the worst of circumstances to bring us back to yourself. We thank you for your discipline. We thank you for the promise of your blessings. We thank you for the blessings that we get to enjoy right now. Relationship with you and with one another. We thank you that they anticipate that greater blessing of our life together in the new heavens and the new earth. We thank you for calling us to be your people, living in your presence and in your place. We love you. Thank you for choosing to walk with us. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to your cross we cling. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.